So first of all, knowledge is power. Sir Francis Bacon, uh, an, uh, writer and philosopher of uh, the 16th century, about the same time as William Shakespeare, once said, knowledge, you, you've heard these words, even if you haven't heard of Sir Francis Bacon, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And we live in a world in which this is almost, it's more true than it's ever been. Have you heard what the Chinese government is doing to control its citizens with its face recognition software? In fact, you'd say that this idea that knowledge is power has been taken in our time to the level of a pathology. Knowledge has become a dominance game. One of the most influential thinkers of our time, a Frenchman called Michel Foucault, actually thought that power and knowledge should be stuck together into one term that he invented, power knowledge. Power, he said, was based on knowledge and reproduces knowledge. What does that mean? We use our knowledgeable words as weapons against one another to know, to make sure that other people know their place. We do that, don't we? We use our expertise, we use our knowledge to control one another. Powerful people are those who know things that others don't. And knowledgeable people can shape other people to their wills. Knowing stuff, we might say, is about mastery. It's about mastery, about power and domination. Putting other people in their place. Displaying our own hard-won wisdom so that we can ascend the scale of influence. And so that's, we pay a fortune, don't we, to educate our kids so that they can have access to that power. We also have great faith in our scientific knowledge to give us mastery of the universe. In 1988, the late, great Professor Stephen Hawking wrote in a book that sold millions but that nobody read. Do you have a copy of A Brief History of Time on your shelf? It's famous that nobody had actually read it, but everybody owned it. Anyway, you want to see, people wanted to look like they knew stuff, even if they didn't. And he said this right at the end of that book. If, I'm not going to replicate his machine voice, um, by the way. If we do discover a theory of everything, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then, he said, we would truly know the mind of God. If we can discover a theory of everything by our scientific uh, work and process, then Hawking says, well, we will, it will seem as if God himself will be caught by surprise with human beings not just have, having mastered the universe in which they live, but God himself, the creator. The implication is that one day human beings, by their knowledge of everything, will even become equal to God himself, be able to be like God and to know God. But... One thing even Stephen Hawking did not realize was that human wisdom cannot understand the mind of God. That's my second point here. Even human wisdom, even a genius like Professor Stephen Hawking, even astrophysicists cannot understand the mind of God. It's arrogance. To think that we can master God like a subject in school or put him in a test tube to examine or pin him to a board like a butterfly. 
that we might measure his measurements, that somehow we could summarize and capture God. Now, back in the first century in Corinth, very similar culture to contemporary culture, actually, first century Corinth, and people there were likewise dazzled by superior knowledge and expertise. They loved someone with a big brain who would come into town and look like they really had things mastered. When Paul visited Athens, not far away, the home of ancient philosophy, he went to the Agora, where people did nothing all day but debate the latest ideas. Do you remember that story from Acts chapter 17? And this was evidently true in Corinth as well. The fashion for discussing the latest ideas was certainly live in that town. And with the obsession with knowledge came the hierarchy of knowledge. There were those who were in the know, and there were those who didn't know. There were those who knew stuff, and so therefore were superior to those who were ignorant. And as always in Corinth, in the Corinthian letters, we read that the church was pretty much the same as the outside culture. Sadly, this spirit of knowledge and power had infected the church. There were those who paraded their superior spiritual wisdom in order to big note themselves. But you might remember that Paul had already said to the Corinthians, look, take a look at yourselves, guys. You remember when you heard the gospel? Not many of you were brainiacs. You, you really weren't known for your brains when I first came and preached the gospel. And not only that, do you remember the gospel I preached to you? I preached to you not about power and glory, but I preached to you about a crucified Messiah. Christianity isn't a deeper spirituality or a brilliant piece of philosophy. It's the story of a dead man whose followers claim that he rose from the dead. That's it. The story of a dead guy who was not, he didn't die nobly in battle, but died crucified on a Roman cross and then rose from the dead. And Paul, he says, I didn't come to you with intellectual brilliance to dazzle you like some university professor, but with a simple message. Christ has died for your sins once for all and is now Lord of all. So hang on a minute, Paul. If it was such a simple message, were you just speaking rubbish? Was this just a children's tale? If it was foolishness, this message of the cross, why should you get a hearing? Well, says Paul, wait a minute. We do speak wisdom, but not as the world knows it. And I want you to look at verse 6 here. Um, sorry, I've got my own Bible version written into the text here, so it'll be slightly different from yours, but similar enough. Verse 6, Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I may not be that impressive, says Paul. Look, I'm not that good looking. My suit isn't that great. I'm still carrying the bruises of being beaten up. I've been rejected a bunch of times. I've had to fight wild animals in Ephesus. Not exactly glorious. I may actually tangle my words. 
I'm not the most rhetorically powerful of speakers. And I may be talking about a crucified Messiah, but what I'm speaking is the wisdom of God the Creator Himself. The wisdom I speak isn't the latest thing. It isn't the most fashionable news. Quite opposite. It's, it's profoundly ancient. And it's secret and hidden. Or at least it has been up till now. No human being can on their own ever crack that code. And if you want proof that the world's wisdom is not so smart, then look at that cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. The wise guys who crucified the Messiah thought they knew stuff. But that they crucified the Messiah shows that they know nothing. Which means that human wisdom could never understand the mind of God. If it did claim to have uncovered God, then we'd have to be suspicious of it. If a professor did walk in here and say, I have uncovered a formula which proves that God exists, and here it is, then we have to be suspicious. Because human, human wisdom can never know the true God. And as I said, we can never ascend into the heavens and subject God to some kind of analysis since he has concealed himself from us in his eternity, his infinity, and his majesty. He cannot be mastered. Now, this sounds very philosophical. Not all of us are Stephen Hawking and can get away with making sweeping statements about theories of everything. But lots of us do think we can design God according to our own ideas. Lots of us do think we can create God in our own image. Lots of us do think that we are clever enough to master God. And we think when that happens, when we do that, that we are very spiritual. But Paul wants to say, that's not the truly spiritual. Let me tell you about the Spirit of God. And that's point three. The Spirit reveals the wisdom of God. We cannot ascend to the heavens to master God. But God, by His Spirit, reveals Himself to us. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, that there, the, he says there that the mystery of God's plan, plans, which we can't just know by looking for them, are revealed to us by the Spirit of God. These things, he says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The depths of God. The word to underline here is revealed. Do the wise attain the wisdom of God, the clever, through their many years of study and through their outstanding IQs. Actually, high intelligence may bring with it a pride, which is a barrier to knowing God. Someone once said to me, um, I don't believe in God because if you look at all the cleverest people in the world, um, mostly professors of physics, the professors of physics in the world don't believe in God on, on a fairly high rate. So there are definitely some physicists who believe in God, but many physicists don't believe in God, so therefore God... I've got good grounds for not believing in God. All the clever people don't believe in God. What Paul says here is actually being clever may be a barrier to knowing God because you think you can know everything by your own efforts. You've misunderstood how God is to be known. He's to be known spiritually by the Spirit 
and revealed. The wisdom of God is revealed to us by the Spirit of God, and only the Spirit of God knows God as He truly is. But that is exactly the Spirit that you and I have received. We cannot deduce God. We cannot find Him. The only way to know Him is for Him to speak to us. And He has in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, immortal, invisible, God only, wise in light, inaccessible, what? Hid from our eyes. Are some oldies here know those words? Hid from our eyes, who far exceeds your computations and your calculations, has revealed himself to us by his Spirit, so that even the simple and the foolish, even the sinful, can know the deepest things of existence itself. And this was true, if you think about it, throughout the Bible. It was the Spirit or the breath of God that was said to rest on the prophets when they spoke in the Old Testament. In fact, Peter says that in his second letter. Men spoke from God, led, carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit spoke through the writers of the Bible in the words that they put down. In the letter to Hebrews, when the writer wants to quote the Old Testament, you know what he says? He says, the Holy Spirit says, and he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about the Bible, God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word through the work of the Holy Spirit. But now, in the fullness of time, he has spoken once more through his Spirit in his Son. That too is a work of God's Spirit. The Spirit of God rested on Jesus when he was baptized, came down on him like, you remember, like a dove from heaven. And Jesus himself, when he went to the synagogue in his hometown, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The prophetic spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. What does this mean? That the spirit reveals God? It means, point four, that we know God. I was pondering a while ago why it should matter so much to us that God reveals himself to us by his spirit. And someone, a friend of mine said to me, because, uh, because relationship is based on self-revelation. It's an indication of love. Relationship is based on self-revelation. It's an indication of love. And I think that's powerfully right. You can know a lot about someone. In this day of social media, you can stalk someone online, can't you? I know you have. You have, haven't you? You know, you've, you've heard about someone and so you look up their Facebook profile. Mm, educated at such and such. Mm, going out with such and such. Or it's complicated, as they say on Facebook. Or, oh, I can see what they put on Twitter or on Instagram. I can see where they've been for their whole life. I can see what they had for lunch. Why do people take photos of their food? <laughs> Actually, having been in Malaysia for a, few week, for a week, I can see why you take photos of your food. Such fantastic food. 
You can know a lot about someone. In fact, you can accumulate a file upon them. You can have a lot of data about a particular person. But you don't know them unless they reveal themselves to you. And in fact, you can only know them as far as they let you know them because you can't see into their heads. I think that's what Paul is saying, that only the spirit of a person knows that person. Only the Spirit of God knows God and can reveal God. That God reveals himself to us by his Spirit means that we don't just have information about him. We don't just have data about him. We really have him. We really know him. In Jesus Christ, in the preaching of the Word of God, in the pages of the Scriptures that he inspired One of my TV shows, uh, my favorite TV shows, is a show called Catfish. Has anyone heard of this show called Catfish? I will just explain this show. It's one of those shows, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to letting you know that I watch. It's reality television. What Catfish does is it explores people who are in relationships with other people online, but who aren't who they say they are. So someone calls up the people from Catfish and says, look, I've been dating this guy online for the last four years and we're actually engaged, but we've never met. And I'm starting to get a little bit suspicious that he isn't who he says he is. And you see the picture of the person and they're sort of a really handsome model and you think, hmm, this person probably isn't who they say they are. And and so what happens is, in fact, uh, in the show, sometimes they find out that the person who they've been dating or even engaged to is actually not the same size or shape or age or even the gender that they thought. And it's a pretty hurtful thing to do to someone, isn't it? To pretend to be in this intimate relationship with someone but to hide your true self from them. Paul says to us, by the power of his spirit in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the preaching of the gospel, God does the opposite. He doesn't catfish us. And what does he tell us about himself by the power of his spirit in the message of the cross? It's a disclosure of love. The spirit of God reveals the unapproachable and unknowable God so that we can approach him and know him. He approaches us and introduces himself out of his sheer love for us. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say that it is the Spirit of God who prompts us to say, Jesus is Lord. If we say Jesus is Lord, not just as a mantra, but of course by our hearts, in our hearts, believing it, believing it in our hearts, we do so because the Spirit of Lord has, the Spirit of, the, of God has prompted us to do it. It is the Spirit who is speaking in us, revealing God Himself to us so that we know not just about Him, but we know Him. Who can fathom it? What an extraordinary thing. What a remarkable piece of news to hear. But Paul says, even though we can't explain it, he says in verse 16, we have in the spirit the mind of Christ. We know something extraordinary. So you've just heard this morning that you know something's been revealed to you that's extraordinary. So does that make you better than everybody else? Does that mean that you are spiritually superior to everyone else? Well, Paul will say, 
Absolutely not. Knowing the secret wisdom of God is not like that. It's not the pretext to wave your knowledge over someone else. It, it couldn't work like that. Have a look at what he says in verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world tells us that knowing things is the, is the opportunity to be better than others. But the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Remember the Corinthians were trying to play this spiritual superiority game. They were claiming deeper spirituality. They had factions to prove it. They had, they had the, the team on the left and the team on the right who were claiming to be more spiritual than the other. They were using their particular gifts to make out that they were more spiritual than others. I've got the gift of tongues. I must be, I must be spiritually superior. I've got the gift of prophecy. I must be spiritually superior. Nobody ever came in and said, I've got the gift of administration. I must be spiritually superior. Strangely. Uh, just to put them down. But that, says Paul, is a worldly spirit. God has bestowed on his people many gifts, all our talents and capacities and opportunities. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ does not teach us to use our gift to divide from one another. The Spirit teaches us to understand our gifts as an opportunity to be more like the cross of Jesus Christ, more like the Jesus whom we serve. The Spirit teaches us to serve one another. The, teach, the Spirit draws us together in love. And this is what makes those gifts actually spiritual, not how spectacular they are. So can you ever know the mind of God? Stephen Hawking hoped that it would be so one day. But we say, if you know, that if you know Jesus Christ by the power of God's Spirit, then you know the mind of God. You have what even Stephen Hawking only dreamed about. You have the wisdom in you that made the stars. You know the God who planned it all. But you know Him as the God who is love. You know him in his mercy and his grace. You know, I don't know how much you know. I'm sure there are professors in this room. There are people with PhDs. There are people with different levels of education. You may not know very much in human terms at all. But you, whoever you may be, have the single decisive piece of wisdom in all human history. Denied to many professors and alien to many geniuses. You have the mind of Christ. You are truly spiritual. If you know Jesus Christ, then you know the mind of God. But this wisdom should take, should take shape in you. It should not and could not make us arrogant. It should humble us. It should make us want to use all we have in serving God and serving others. We should see this spiritual wisdom take shape in our lives in love for one another, in the way we serve the city around us, in the way we share Christ with others. It should make this revelation among us a profound difference. Now, I know this difference is not automatic. I've known ministers and even theology professors who have used their superior knowledge to bully and dominate other people. They've used their clever words to belittle others or to manipulate them and to puff themselves up. The Corinthians had to be reminded of what they had and urged to change, 
to listen more carefully to what the Spirit had revealed to them. And that's what you and I have to do as well. We have spiritual wisdom, but it's the wisdom of the cross. It's the wisdom of humility. It's the wisdom about the one who gave his life for others. And if we really have that knowledge, if we really have that revelation, if we really know the mind of God, we will use our knowledge not to dominate, but to serve. So how does the Spirit reveal? That's point five here. God reveals himself to us by his Spirit. How does he actually do that? Where can I find the true God revealing himself? How does the Spirit reveal him to us? Well, he reveals himself two ways, which are really pretty much the same way. He reveals himself in Jesus and in the Bible, which is the book about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work is to highlight Jesus. Someone once said to me uh, that the Holy Spirit's ministry is a flood-like ministry. He is not something that we look at, but rather that helps us to look at what we ought to look at. That is Jesus, the message about Jesus. The Spirit inspired those prophets in the past who foretold Jesus is coming. It's by the Spirit of God that we say Jesus is Lord. The Spirit of God shows that he is God's Son, with whom God is well pleased. And the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead, declaring him with power to be the Son of God. We read that in Romans chapter 1 in the first three, three, three or four verses. Because the Holy Spirit's work is to highlight Jesus, the Bible has been given to us so that his work will continue, so that we can still hear of that revelation. We can still have that revelation with us. In 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the great 3.16 verses in the Bible, we read, do you remember, that all Scripture is, does anyone remember? God breathed. It's a really interesting word. God breathed. Right? It's the word, of, it's, it's the word for spirit, the word for breath. The writing of the Bible, then, is inspired, inspirited by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the Spirit's book. The human authors wrote using lots of different techniques and styles and lots of perspiration, but the Holy Spirit gave them inspiration. Each of the books in our Bible was the product not just of human sweat and toil, but of divine inspiration of the work of the Spirit. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit for us, speaking to us about Jesus so that we might continue to testify that Jesus is Lord. So how do you know that a church is spiritual? I once went to a, a church which was known for being a Bible teaching church and there was a church up the road that was called the Spirit-led church. And people would say to me, well, I like the teaching here, but it's much more Spirit-led up the road because the worship was extremely lively. And they would say, that's a lively church. This is a it's rather dead Bible-teaching church. It's not the same thing at all. But you know that a church is spiritual, not because it has lots of spectacular events or because the worship is long and loud or because we sing more than two songs in a row. We don't sing more than two songs in a row in my church either. <laughs> but because it gathers around Jesus in his word and seeks to live it out. A truly spirit-filled church, if you want a truly spirit-filled church, you will find a church that listens to the word of God. 
It's a church where the Bible is open and the Spirit is speaking. But there's a third part. Jesus, the Bible, a third part of the Spirit's revealing work that we should not forget. And it's something that the Corinthians knew. The Spirit is also at work in us when we understand the Gospel. Not only does He cause the Word of God to be spoken, not only does He cause it to be written down, He also causes us to understand it. He illuminates our hearts and minds as we hear the Word and respond. So a Spirit-filled church is a church where the Bible is open. But not just where the Bible is open, it's where the Bible is listened to. So how do we listen to the Spirit? Last point, point six. If the Holy Spirit is the Spirit who reveals, and what He reveals is that Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the Son of God, and if He inspired the writing of the book about Jesus, and if He enlightens us to see what He is saying, What's our job? If this is true, what will our Christian life look like and what will church look like? Well, first of all, as I said already, the Bible will be open in a spirit-filled church so that we can be ready for the spirits to work. We don't dance and sing and cut ourselves with stones as the prophets of Baal did in order to get God to come down and be present. We open his word and we open our ears and we open our hearts. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, I think I mentioned this on the weekend, the ears alone are the organ of the Christian. I can imagine Christians turning up with great big ears on their heads, you know, huge ears. We are listeners. That's our first duty, to listen. We are a group of people whose first job is to listen. We open the scriptures so that we can hear and be transformed by the work of God's Spirit. We pray as we open it that His Spirit, who caused the words on the page to be written, would work in you and me so that we can understand them, so that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. But second, so the Bible will be open, but second, the Spirit reveals God to us. And that should make a difference. We won't confuse if we are truly spirit-led. We won't confuse knowing about the Bible with knowing the Bible. You can't, of course, know the Bible without knowing things about the Bible. But knowing God is a spiritual thing. What the Spirit reveals to us is the message of the cross. A message that should make us humble. If the Spirit is at work among us, then we won't be arrogant with how much we know. A spiritual church must be a Bible-teaching church. But a Bible-teaching church may not be a spiritual church because it may be filled with a knowledge that puffs up and divides. Bible knowledge may be used in a worldly way, to dominate, to subjugate, to threaten, and to control. That church may know the Bible, may know about the Bible, but does it know the Bible? The Spirit reveals the secret things of God to us, but if that is true, then this knowledge can never become a weapon of power over others. The Spirit reveals to us the wisdom of the cross, and so my challenge is, is that evident among you? 
Can people say there at SMAC there truly is a Bible teaching and spirit-filled church because I can see that they are ready not just to know about the Bible but to listen to the God who speaks by His Spirit and to put what He says into practice. As Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. Amen.